0: Well, good morning, morning. and happy happy Easter. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Amen. It is highly appropriate that on the second Sunday of Easter that we would focus on the church. The church is the community of God's people that is defined by the Easter event and we are called to live out the resurrected life. We will unpack this a little bit more this morning as we go on. The Gospel text appears the second Sunday of Easter in all three years of the lectionary. And the Sunday after Easter often feels like a bit of a letdown. After the crowds and the excitement the week before, the service can seem tame and bring a little bit of disappointment in comparison. Often, head pastors take this week off from preaching. That's why when I went looking through my notes of previous years, I couldn't find one sermon on this passage. (laughs) The temptation for everyone is to go back to life as usual, leaving the drama of Easter Day behind. But we need to remember that Easter is a celebration of 50 days, and every Sunday throughout the year is a mini-Easter. Now the early early church fathers were fond of making a comparison of the church with Israel. Israel was birthed and defined by the Exodus event. So when Israel went astray, which happened often, and prophets called on the Israelites to repent of their ways and return to their beginnings in the Exodus event. And they were asked to remember their calling by living in the covenantal relationship that was established through the Exodus experience, their deliverance from slavery that led them to the promised land. So like Israel, the church has frequently forgotten its beginnings. It passes through times of wilderness wanderings, times of turning away from God, times when it forgets that it is the community of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're called to announce, embody, and to demonstrate this good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. So Easter season is a time to call the church back to its roots, back to its beginnings, back to to its original identity. The church was not and never has been perfect. And the reason that is the case is because you and I belong to it. We we see this in the story of Thomas in this uh, passage this morning. He wanted proof because his faith was based on evidence. And yet the writer of Hebrews taught us in chapter 11 verse 1, Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So the proof of the resurrection is not in reason and intellectual argument alone, but primarily in the community of the resurrected people. The church is called to be a sign a witness to the Easter message that Christ has overcome the powers of evil, sin, and death. And we're told that we prove to be disciples by the love that we have for each other. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display His wisdom in its rich variety, to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we're called to display his wisdom. So every generation has to ask the difficult questions of what it means to be a Christian here and now, in this place, at this time. It is our desire to faithfully speak to people living in the 21st century, providing love and listening well, knowing how to have a good healthy conversation that shows respect but is also not afraid to ask questions and to share honestly and that does not enter into today's culture of outrage and thus as a result of entering into this culture of outrage we lose our testimony and our witness we need to be contextual but we need to be contextual without watering down the message We have to share and show the gospel faithfully and loyally to an ever-changing culture. But in doing so, we need to remember our origins, our roots in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And once again, become a community of the resurrection. I'd like to explore what that means to be a community of the resurrection. We talked about it on Easter. We're talking about it this morning. Let's try to unpack that a little bit more. After Mary Magdalene encounters the risen Christ, he gives her an assignment. He says, Go find the disciples, tell them the story of what you have seen, and deliver to them this message that Jesus will soon ascend to the Father. Verse 19 opens behind the closed, locked doors of the upper room in which the disciples are huddled together. It is the evening of that same day, and Mary's report had apparently done little to encourage the emotional state of Jesus' followers. So they are locked in, they're hunkered down, and closed up because of their fear of the Jews. And the disciples anticipate that the religious authorities, having gotten rid of Jesus, the so-called troublemaker, will soon be coming for them as well. So even though the room was closed and locked, John reports that Jesus was standing there among them. So before any opportunity to react, Jesus offers his disciples a blessing and he says, Peace be with you. I'd like you to notice how many times you see this phrase, peace, peace, be, peace be with you, in our text. Before the disciples even ask, Jesus proves his real physical existence by showing them not only the wounds in his hands, but the mark of this, this spear that was thrust into his side. And he is not a ghost in, in, in spite of his ability to pass through the door when it was locked. So this is the same Jesus, the living human that his disciples had known and loved. So after confirming his physical presence, Jesus once again repeats his declaration and he says, Peace be with you. And as John's gospel has emphasized repeatedly, Jesus declares his and our sentness. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. John 17 verse 18 seems to identify the focus and the scope of our sentness when he says this, Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. So the world is identified as Jesus' mission ground, and it is our mission ground as well. So we have the responsibility and the privilege to be sent into the world, into our everyday life, into our workplace, our neighborhoods, etc., etc., to show and to share the good news of Jesus, to live the resurrected life. So when Jesus breathed the gift of the Holy Spirit into that closed room, he performed spiritual CPR on his disciples, And and fearfully together, Jesus stepped into their midst and breathed peace, he breathed purpose, and he breathed possibility back into their deflated souls. And I'm sure that some of us here this morning could probably use some of that um, breathing of peace, purpose, and possibility back into us. For whatever reason, we might have an inflated soul. But he's here and he wants to breathe his Holy Spirit and his peace and our heart and life the holy spirit is breathed out for all to take in jesus ex- exhales the holy spirit and his disciples inhale deeply that breath of life so in what ways do we need cpr life to be brought back into us are we living in fear anxiety hate bitterness jealousy unforgiveness and we can keep going on and on Maybe we are tired, we're exhausted. Jesus breathes It invites all to receive the Holy Spirit. It is a collective gift to those that would be the community of God. That is us. So what is stopping us from exhaling our troubles and burdens, sins and evil and darkness, and breathing in that wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit? Thomas, one of the twelve, missed Jesus' first visit, and despite the excitement of the others, Thomas, bless him, acts as we would expect and like many of us. Thomas refused to believe until he not only sees for himself, but also feels the marks. And only when those conditions are met will Thomas affirm that a true resurrection of Jesus' body has taken place. In verse 26, it is once again the first day of the week, eight days later, when the disciples are are again gathered in the house and Jesus again appears among them in a miraculous manner. He greets his disciples, offering them again what? Peace. Peace. So Jesus now directly addresses Thomas and invites him to go ahead and perform the physical exam that he demanded. But Jesus' real invitation is for Thomas to give up his doubt and instead embrace faith. So the question this morning that we need to ask ourselves is what areas have we been doubtful? What areas do we need to embrace faith? So Thomas calls out in faith, my Lord and my God. Jesus accepts Thomas's confession, yet he also gently chides Thomas for having to depend upon eyesight to elicit faith. So John's Gospel has not mentioned any specific individuals who had believed without seeing the risen Jesus. Now this is interesting. Mary Magdalene and the other disciples had also believed because they had seen Jesus' resurrected body. So Jesus' words then might be forward-looking, reminding the disciples of the commission he had given them eight days ago. So the disciples are being sent By the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit living in and through them, not Jesus' risen physical body that will stand before the world. It is the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We are the witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. In other words, we have the opportunity to live as a community of faith. The body of Christ, the church of the resurrected Lord. The Holy Spirit will be at work in and through this community and will be the evidence for the resurrection. Our words and our deeds will demonstrate to the world that we are disciples of the risen Jesus. The community of faith who follows Jesus Christ and lives the gospel of the kingdom embodies his character and his ways will be the best defense in the interpretation of the gospel today. I I think that apologetics is important, and I think in different generations and in different seasons throughout the church's life, we've needed different apologetics for different seasons to reach different types of people. But today, I believe that one of the greatest apologetics that we can give... Now, I'm not saying anything, arguing that there's... there's I'm not saying that there's not a place for words. I think that there, there is very much a place for words. But I think people looking at us and seeing that we live differently is the greatest defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then that will open up the opportunity to use words. Verses 29-31 through 31 says, Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Here he gives the purpose of this book. and He says the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So this applies to every generation who reads this gospel. The entire reason for John's writings is to communicate the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, so that every generation, every culture, every person, every community will have life by the power of his name. I'd like us to look at verse 23. It says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. So how do we feel about that? Are you up for the task? Of course not. The verse continues, If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. If anyone imagines that they are ready and willing to take on this task, uh, they probably need to go back to school and learn a few lessons on humility. I think we all realize this is a huge task. What does this mean? But Jesus thinks that the disciples can do it. He thinks that we can as well. Indeed, he's not asking them if they would like to. He's giving them a command. They are to go and do it. But of course, that is not the whole story. They could come back at him and say, but we thought only God could forgive sins. And they would be right. But God is going to forgive sins through them. The command comes after the crucial promise and gift Of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who lives in us and empowers us for the work that God calls us to do. The point of receiving the Holy Spirit, it it is clear, is not to give the disciples new spiritual experiences, though we could be certain that we're going to have plenty of spiritual experiences. Nor is it to set them apart from ordinary people in this way a sort of holier than thou club. That's not the reason. The point is so that they can do in and for the whole world what Jesus had been doing in Israel. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So that is the clue to it all. So, how does the unique achievement of Jesus in one time and place affect all other times and places? How does the message that he preached, which made so much sense in the the first century Palestine, particularly when we're looking back and reading and trying to understand it, spread to other cultures and peoples who aren't thinking about God's kingdom? The long story of God in Israel has reached its climax in Jesus. And now the salvation that he had brought to Israel is to come from the Jewish world out to the wider world of the Gentiles. And the disciples would just start the process of taking it there, and they certainly did just that. Many of us never think about this being our job description. We often think this is something done by the clergy. We hire the clergy. We hire the ministers to do the work of ministry. Or we think it's the job of the missionaries who go and do it in other parts of the world. Or we think that it's the job of the hired staff of the church. Maybe a few specially gifted lay people might be included here. Now, I would certainly think that that would not be the story or the narrative of All Saints Cathedral. So, I, I would think that we all realize that we, that is our job description. It's what we're all called to do. And certainly, the clergy's job is to equip God's people to go and to do the work of ministry. And they are to model that ministry. But it's all of our jobs. We are the people of God and we're called to get on with the mission. However, Jesus' breath, God's breath, spiritual CPR enables all of us to do the work of ministry. And the Bible makes that so crystal clear. So we are to pronounce in God's name and by his Holy Spirit the message of forgiveness to all who believe in Jesus. We are to also retain sins, to warn the world that sin is serious, it's a deadly disease, and that to remain in it will bring death. So we're to rebuke and warn, not because we don't like people or because we're seeking power or prestige for ourselves, but because this is God's message to a chaotic, confused and defiant world, a people prone to do things their own way, to follow their own idols, to serve the flesh and to live in darkness. St. Paul, 20 years or so later than this, asked in Second Corinthians, who was sufficient for such things? He, like John, gave the right answer. None of us. But God enables us to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we close, may we remember that we are a community of the resurrection. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're living by faith, and we're on with the mission. Our gospel reading, simply put, Jesus offers them and us peace. He evokes joy. He calls us to trust Him. He fills us with His Holy Spirit, and He appoints us all as witnesses of His ambassadors in the world in which we live. Amen.